If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like, you to, I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is arguably the most beautiful chapter in the New Testament. It's famous for its literary majesty as well as the lofty essence of its subject. Alan Redpath said one could get a spiritual suntan from the warmth of this chapter. Adolf Harnack, a noted Christian theologian and writer, spoke of this chapter as, quote, the greatest, strongest, deepest thing Paul ever wrote. I think we have to be careful in referring to one part of Scripture as more as greater than another part of Scripture because it's all the Word of God. And yet, this passage shines. It's special. Paul didn't write his letters. He actually dictated his letters because, in fact, if you look at the end of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that he notes there that he actually wrote the greeting with his own hand. So he had a secretary. And I just imagine as he was going through 1 Corinthians and and speaking these words and the secretary was writing them down that when he got to this chapter, the secretary did a double take as the words began to flow in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because they stand out. These verses are the most eloquent, profound words ever written on the subject of love. And I really kind of hesitate to dig into this chapter because of its poetic beauty. It's a masterpiece. You just want to kind of stand back and admire it. G. Campbell Morgan said that examining this chapter is like dissecting a flower to understand it. If you tear it apart too much, you lose the beauty. And yet I think we have to examine it. We have to analyze it. We have to tear it apart. And my prayer is that when we put it back together, it'll be even more significant and more beautiful to us. Now, most people deal with this chapter as an island unto itself. Uh, where do you most often hear this chapter? At a wedding. I was, uh, we're going to get to the first characteristic of love, and it's love is patient. I'm not very patient. Uh, when I watch TV, I kind of surf through the channels. So I was surfing the other day through the channels, and I, and I came on this movie. I don't think I've ever watched a movie all the way through. I don't have the patience. I'll be honest with you. But anyway, I, I come on this movie, and it's, it's uh, The Wedding Crashers. Now, I'm not endorsing this movie. I don't even know, what, I don't know what's rated. I don't know anything about it. I just came on the movie, and uh, it was called The Wedding Crashers, and obviously these two guys crash weddings. So they're sitting in the wedding, and the wedding's getting started, and they're explaining, I guess, to the father of the bride who they are in the family and making up the story, and then it's, what is it, Vince Vaughn, is that his name? Vince and Owen somebody. And they're sitting there, and the wedding's about to start, and the one guy turns to the other guy and says, I'll bet you $5 it's 1 Corinthians 13. And the other guy gets $5 it's Colossians 3. So in a wedding, you can almost anticipate that this is going to be read somewhere. Because that's the way we look at it. We look at it as an island, but we want to be careful that we see this chapter in its context. And the context is that in chapter 12, he presents to us our unity as the body of Christ and our diversity and that we are all given 
spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 14, he's going to show us how to really use our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. So in between chapter 12 and chapter 14, we have the sphere of using our spiritual gifts, which is the sphere of love. In fact, at the end of chapter 12, he says, I want you to desire the greater gifts, but I want to show you a more excellent way. You see, the Corinthians were emphasizing a good thing, spiritual gifts. And Paul says, I want to show you the best thing, and that is love. Because if you use your spiritual gifts apart from love, they are useless. So what Paul tells us in chapter 13 is that the gifts of the Spirit without, a, without the fruit of the Spirit is useless. And what is the first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. And so this is the love chapter. Let me give you an outline for this chapter as we go through it. And we're going to spend some couple months here. So you'll have time to get this outline. Four points. First is the prominence of love in verses 1 to 3. Second is the properties of love in verses 4 to 7. Third, the permanence of love. Love never fails in verses 8 to 12. And then the preeminence of love in verse 13. The greatest of these is love. And so we have the prominence of love, the properties of love, the permanence of love, and the preeminence of love. Now let me say this from the outset. I don't, I don't want you to sit out there and think, good, he's talking about love, because my spouse and my kids need to hear this. My roommate could use a good lesson in love. But of course, I, I don't really need a lesson in love, because I'm basically a loving person. I'm very easy to get along with. I want to preface this by saying that as we go into this chapter, I want you to forget about everyone else around you and say, God, I want you to take these words and I want you to apply them to me. First point in this chapter is the prominence of love in verses 1 to 3. Now again, this is poetically beautiful. It's very familiar. Sometimes you read this chapter and you just kind of zone out because you've heard it before. What we want to understand, especially in these first three verses, is the rugged reality of what Paul presents here. Because he is telling us that love is just not some high ideal. Love is not just important. Love is not just something you need to get around to one of these days. Love is essential. Love is the bottom line. Love is the essence of life. And the message in these first three verses is, I don't care what your spiritual gift is. I don't care what your ministry is. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you know. If love is not the major contribution of your life, then you make no contribution. And I want us to notice how Paul says that in these first three verses. He essentially takes in these first three verses and he points out six things and then he takes love out of them and shows what's left. He compares love to six things in these first three verses. The first thing he tells us is that love is more important than eloquence. Notice verse 1. 
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That word tongues is the Greek word glossa, which means languages. Obviously, in this context, that's the word for tongues. He talks about that in chapter 14 quite a bit. And what he's saying here is that even if I spoke with the languages of men or the languages of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, some people have taken this verse and and said, well, then tongues must be heavenly language because angels speak it. But it's interesting, if you look around in the Bible, Daniel and John heard matters difficult for men to understand, and Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was caught up into heaven, and he said he heard unspeakable words. But what I find interesting is that every time we see an angel in the Bible, they speak human language. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see angels and men singing together. So obviously we're singing the same language. So I think it's it's arguable that, that angels have their own language. But I think here what he's doing is he's speaking in hyperbole. Because if you look at these first three verses, he talks about somebody who knows all mystery, all knowledge, has all faith, gives all their goods. And so here he's saying, I can speak with great eloquence. And I can use the very best words on earth, and I can use the very best words in heaven. And if I don't have love, then I'm just making noise. I'm just banging on a gong. I'm just clanging cymbals together. That's all I'm doing. Remember one time when I was in college and I was renting, there was a kid in the neighborhood played the trumpet. And he would come out every afternoon when he got home from school and he would stand under his carport and play the trumpet. I guess his parents wouldn't let him in the house. But that would resonate throughout the neighborhood and he needed to practice. Can you imagine? I mean, when you listen to an orchestra... The symbols are great. You know, you hear, hear all the music and you get to the end and it's time for the crescendo and you hear that shh. But can you imagine if your kid played the symbols? <laughs> and he's at home practicing and there is no orchestra. He just shh, shh. <laughs> Take it under the carport. Paul says, I can be the most eloquent speaker on the planet. Not just using every language that man knows, but using the language of angels in heaven. And if I don't have love, I'm just an irritating sound to the ears of God. Second, love is more important than preaching. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I can have the gift of prophecy. I can be a great preacher. I can have the power to proclaim the word of God. And if I haven't got love, 
I'm nothing. We're often guilty in the church of evaluating people on the basis of their spiritual gift. We say, that guy's a great preacher. Look how spiritual he is. Well, this verse tells me that I can be a great preacher and be a zero in the eyes of God. Because the issue for God is not my spiritual gift. He gave me that. The issue for God is love. You know, you can see preachers in the Bible from A to Z. I want to take a look today at the J's. It was a preacher in the Old Testament that was very very popular. His name was Jonah. He was a great preacher. In fact, he preached the greatest revival in the history of mankind. And then after he was done preaching the revival and having everybody in the city of Nineveh repent, the Bible tells us he went outside and sat on a hillside and moped and complained and was angry and bitter with God. And God had to confront him because he didn't care about the people he was preaching to. In fact, God says, you don't even care about the babies in that city. There was a guy who had a great gift of preaching, powerful ministry, and no love. He was a zero. There was another J in the Old Testament. That was Jeremiah. He wasn't a popular preacher. In fact, nobody liked to listen to him. In fact, when God called him, he said, I want you to go preach for me, but before you leave, let me tell you something. Nobody's going to listen to you. I'm not going to hear a word you say. Now, get out there and do it. (laughs) He preached. Nobody listened. But you know what? Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet because he wept over the lost people of Israel. He says in Jeremiah 9.1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. There's a guy who wasn't a preacher that you look at and say, my, what an amazing preacher. But he had love for the people. And in God's eyes, he was special. One more J, Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us twice in the Gospels that Jesus cried. One time was in John chapter 11 at the grave of Lazarus. The shortest verse in the Bible says Jesus wept. That word wept is a word that means a tear ran down his cheek. But in Luke chapter 19, It tells us when Jesus got to the city of Jerusalem that he looked at the city and the Bible tells us that he wept over it. And that's a Greek word that means he burst out in tears. 
His body was racked with heaving, sobbing over the city of Jerusalem. And that's when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a mother gathers her chicks, a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. His heart was broken that Israel was going astray from God and wouldn't come to him. That tells you something. Jesus shed a tear over a believer who died. He wept and sobbed over lost people. Which might make us reflect on what makes me cry. When's the last time I cried over lost people around me? See, it's not about how well you can preach. It's about how much you love the people around you. Love is more important than preaching. Third, love is more important than knowledge. Paul says, I could understand all mysteries. Now in the Bible, the word mystery means something that is undiscoverable by human means, but something that God has to reveal to us by divine revelation. That's a mystery. And he says, you could know and understand and explain all the great mysteries of God. Have, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I can know all the facts there are to know. I can know everything about nuclear science, everything about medicine, everything about philosophy and psychology and theology and all the other ologies. I could answer any question you could come and ask me. But if I don't have love, Paul says, I'm nothing. What did he say in 1 Corinthians 8.1? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now that's not to say knowledge isn't important. In Philippians 1.8, Paul says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. See, knowledge without love just puffs up. If you have knowledge without love, you're a nobody who thinks you're somebody. Love is more important than knowledge. Fourth, love is more important than faith. He says in this verse, that I could have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Now, where does he get that from? Jesus said that a couple times in Matthew 17 and Matthew 21. He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, be moved over here and it'll happen. Or you can say to a mountain, be thrown into the sea and it will happen. I don't think he's speaking literally there because if you start moving mountains, you're going to create all kinds of problems. I think he's saying you've got the kind of faith that believes God to do that which is impossible. I can have so much faith that I believe God for the impossible and when everything points against it happening, I still believe God. And if I don't have love, I am nothing. Now again, faith is important. In fact, it's so important. Hebrews eleven sixteen says we can't please God without it. But as important as faith is, If I have faith without love, I'm nothing. The 
priest and the Levite in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan had faith. I'm sure they could quote a lot more scripture than the Good Samaritan could. But they had no love. And that's why they walked around a man in need and left him to die in the street. I like the way the NIV puts Paul's words in Galatians 5, 6. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you have faith and no love, you're nothing. Then fifthly, love is more important than generosity. Look at verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, Paul isn't talking here about 10% giving or 20% giving. He's talking about giving it all away. If I give everything that I own for as good a cause as feeding the poor, and if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. A good example of that is Ananias and Sapphira. They gave a great deal to the church, but they gave for the wrong motive. And God was so offended by that that he struck them dead for it. That's why Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, because giving needs to be out of a motive, out of a heart of love. Sixth, love is more important than sacrifice. He tells me at the end of verse 3 that I could be burned at the stake as a martyr. And if I do it out of a motive other than love, it profits me nothing. People die all the time for good causes. I have great respect for our soldiers. They give their lives for our country. You see these kamikaze pilots who go out and give their life to destroy something for a military cause. You see these terrorists who are willing to give their life for a cause. You can do that as a Christian. You can give yourself as a martyr for Jesus Christ and if you have the wrong motive. If you do it without love, it profits you nothing. I really think if somebody came in here with a gun and said, everybody who's willing to denounce Jesus Christ, can leave. I think we'd have a large number of people who would stay here, who would be martyred for Jesus Christ. But you know, I think to myself, which is easier? To die for Jesus or to live for others? Well, this verse tells me which is more important. He says, love for others, I'm loving the Lord by loving you, is more important than sacrificing my life, than giving myself as a martyr. You know, you kind of get the idea that love is important, don't you? If you look at these three verses, he says, the loveless person, verse 1, produces nothing. The loveless person, verse 2, is nothing. And the loveless person, verse 3, receives nothing. 
Love is essential. Love is prominent. Love is the bottom line. If you're a mathematician, let me put it into an equation. You plus everything minus love equals zero. See, I can be the most gifted person. I can know everything. I can believe everything. I can sacrifice everything. I can die as a martyr, and you can buy my biography and say, what a wonderful guy he is. But if I don't have love, in the eyes of God, I produce nothing, I am nothing, I receive nothing. Love is not an option for a Christian. It's foundational. If you take love out of your life, you're a zero. No matter what your spiritual gift is, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, If love is not the major contribution of your life, you make no contribution. I read a paraphrase of these first three verses by a guy named David Sanford. I'd like to read it to you. He says, if I talk a lot about God and the Bible and the church, but I fail to ask about your needs and then help you, I'm simply making a lot of empty religious noise. If I graduate from theological seminary and know all the answers to questions you'll never even think of asking, and if I have all the degrees to prove it, and if I say I believe in God with all my heart and soul and strength and claim to have incredible answers to my prayers to show it, but I fail to take the time to find out where you're at and what makes you laugh and why you cry, I'm nothing. If I sell an extra car and some of my books to raise money for some poor starving kid somewhere, and if I give my life for God's service and burn out after pouring everything I have into the work, but do it all without ever once thinking about the people, the real hurting people, the moms and dads and sons and daughters and orphans and widows and the lonely and the hurting, if I pour my life into the kingdom but forget to make it relevant to those here on earth. My energy is wasted, and so is my life. Love is the most prominent thing. Love is the most important thing. You say, well, if love is the most important thing, then what is love? Well, that's the second point, the properties of love. And we don't have time to go into it today. So you'll have to come back. But let me just give you a little taste of it. Verse 4, love is patient. That one makes me go, ouch, because that's my problem. Why do you have to start with that one? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. And on it goes. Fifteen characteristics of love. He's going to show us what love looks like in street clothes. How practical it is in our lives. But first he wants to tell us it's essential, it's fundamental. You're nothing without it. 
So as we look at this second point starting next week, we need to be serious about what love is and how it applies to our lives because it is the fundamental, essential thing that God's looking for in the life of a Christian. As Kevin said earlier, they will know we are Christians by our love. I'm going to have the praise team come back. I want us to sing that song again, if we can, that... uh, It's all about Jesus, because that's really it. It's all about him and allowing his love to flow out through me. If we can get a hold of that, we can be difference makers in this world. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close today. I'm going to ask you to reflect on these words in these first three verses and how God's speaking to your heart. Maybe today, in your life, it's not all about Jesus. And maybe in the quietness of your heart right now, you just need to make that prayer to him and that surrender to him to let him have all of you so that he can produce his love inside of you. It's not your love that's going to do this. It's his love in you as you surrender to him. Let's do that afresh today. I think there are those that are joining today. You come as we sing as well. But let's make this our prayer to the Lord this morning.